We're back in Romans 8. We'll be in Romans 8 for a couple more Sundays, and then we'll uh, get into chapter 9. Uh, and I thought we were going to finish 9 before our Advent season starts. We're probably not going to. We're probably going to be in 9 a little bit into January of 2012, but we are making progress. Uh, but Romans is, is not a book you want to rush through too quickly. So this morning, we're going to be looking in just a couple minutes at Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 28 through 30. I have a friend... And every time I see this friend or, or talk to this friend on the phone, it doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Eventually, at some point in the conversation, he says the same thing to me. He says, it's all good. It's all good. And when I first met him, I was a little bit offended by that. Because he would say that and I would be like, no, it's not. Your life might be all good. My, I, I, don't, I don't think I can say that about my And then I thought, well, maybe... He's just, you know, maybe that's his, his way of saying, Tom, you know, you're a pastor and I really want to talk to you, so it's all good, go away. But then we actually started hanging out together and, and we became friends and, and really got to know each other. And we've been through some, some tough times together. We, we've, we've walked through some valleys together. And yet pretty much every time we get together, he says it's all good. And I say the same thing. Really? The question that I want us to wrestle with this morning, I think this passage calls us to wrestle with this morning, is exactly that. Is it right in some context to say it's all good? Is that really true? And and if it is, then how do we have that perspective in our lives? If that's actually a healthy, mature approach to life for a disciple of Jesus, then how do we get our minds around that and and understand that actually in God's providence, in, in God's economy... For us to look at our lives in a context of his goodness is actually healthy for us. It's beneficial for us. Jesus' disciples are not immune from the pains and the struggles of this world. There isn't a Sunday that goes by that I don't come in and when we gather together for corporate worship and either catch up with somebody I know who's had a tough week uh, or I find out about somebody who's struggling, maybe got a report from the doctor that wasn't good or business had problems or a child had some problems. We are not as disciples of Jesus, as, as those who believe in Christ, uh, exempt from the struggles of the world. So can we honestly say that it's all good? Or is it just kind of a polite way to, to start off a conversation? Is it really possible to rest in God's goodness in every circumstance? What Paul is going to tell us this morning is that it's not only possible, it's actually vital to our spiritual health. So Romans chapter 8 Verse 28, which is probably a verse which many of us are familiar with, and verses 29 and 30 here. The Word of God, follow along in your Bibles, are on the screen uh, there behind me. And we know that, all, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come to a text this morning that challenges us on many different levels. Father, we long to, uh, to, to love you. 
and to be in relationship with you. Father, for those of us who who have placed our faith in Christ, we want to be in an intimate relationship with you that your word describes. As we've studied Romans, what we have learned is that, that while we were still your enemies, Christ died for us. And that you have called us into, a, into an adoptive relationship. You want to make us your sons and your daughters. And yet there are moments, Lord, when, when we live in this broken world where uh, the struggles come, uh, when the darkness seems to surround us, and, and we feel cut off from that goodness. And we feel as if perhaps you have abandoned us or, or you don't understand our circumstances or maybe even that you don't care. And Lord, it may be that, that some people in this room have been offended at one time or another when a well-meaning Christian has, has walked into a very difficult situation and just said, oh, don't worry, it'll all work out for good without really being sensitive to the, to the pain and the hurt. And Lord, these verses are not given to us by you because you're insensitive to our pain. They're not given to us because you just want us to buck up and have a better attitude. Father, these are the words of life. And so as hard as they may be for us to, to completely understand, as challenging as they may be given our circumstances, Lord, I pray that they would be just that this morning, that they would be your word of life, that you would speak to your people that are gathered here. Father, some of us have been walking for many, many years in faith. Others of us are just coming to faith and, and others of us, Lord, are not sure whether or not uh, we want to have faith in you. I thank you that you know every person here. I thank you that you know every circumstance. And you give us this word as a call to us to put our faith in the only one who can save and redeem. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do your work in our lives this morning, in our minds, as we, as we worship you with our voices Now we come to worship you with our intellect, with our thoughts. And we pray that you would speak your truth into our lives. Father, forgive me for my sins. You know them. You know that I need a Savior as much or more as anybody else in this room. I pray that you would not let me be a hindrance this morning, but that you would speak your truth to us. For Jesus' sake, for his glory, and for our good. Pray in his name. Amen. Well, that's a a bit of a strong statement, but I want to try and stand behind it uh, because I believe that's what Scripture is saying, that it's not just possible uh, that we we live in the perspective of a broken world uh, in difficult moments in the light of the fact uh, of God's goodness, and that it's actually important that we develop that attitude in our lives, that as we walk through uh, moments of great joy, moments of great triumph, as well as moments that maybe seem uh, like times of despair, uh, with, with the same understanding of our God and His care and His character for us. I have three observations in this text this morning, one for each verse, one in 28, one in 29, and one in 30. And hopefully when we're done, what we'll see uh, is that our identity in Christ really does allow us to see every circumstance in our lives through that lens and, and for our good. So let's start with verse 20, 28, and, and the statement I'm going to give for verse 28 is simply this. Identity breeds stability. Identity breeds stability. Let's look at 28 again where Paul writes, and we know, he doesn't say we're guessing about it, he doesn't say this is our opinion, or we kind of are hoping that this is true. He says, we know that for those who, and then he gives two descriptive terms for us, those who love God 
All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In this passage, Paul talks about our identity and he describes us in the first part as those who love God. We know that those who love God, and then he goes on to explain uh, the reality of those who love God. This is a very rare term for Paul. Paul normally talks about disciples of Jesus in the context of God's love for them. You have been loved by God. You have been chosen by God. You have been redeemed by God. You have been forgiven by God. And, and he usually describes those of us who, who have put our faith in Christ as the recipients of all those things. And that's absolutely true. There's only one other place that, that I could find as I studied this week where Paul uses the term, those who love God, where he, where he flips it around and he describes us as those who are actively loving God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he uses that same phrase. So this is a very rare phrase for Paul, and we're going to come back to that in just a second. The second way he describes us is not only those who love God, but those who are called according to his purposes. So now I'm going to back up to, to the first part and say, ask the question, why do I love God? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? If you, if you are a follower of Jesus, have you ever just stopped and thought, why is it that my reaction to God on a lot of different, in a lot of different ways, a lot of different places, my reaction is a reaction of love? You know, we come and we sing on Sunday morning, and your heart is filled with love. Uh, maybe you're kneeling by your, your bed in the evening or in the morning, you've read some scriptures, and you're spending some time in prayer, and your heart overflows with love for God. Maybe you're serving Him in some capacity. You're teaching a Sunday school class, or you're on the setup takedown team, and you realize that uh, all the work that you put in on Sunday morning allows people to hear the gospel, and you say, thank you, Lord. I'm just, I just love you so much. Why is that? Why is that within our hearts? It is because... We have been called according to his purpose. It's because that before we had any inclination whatsoever to love God, he loved us. That's the way John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son for us. I love God because I am responding to his call. I am called according to his purpose. What is God's purpose? God's purpose is salvation for lost sinners. God's purpose is a gracious purpose. God's purpose is a life-giving purpose. And so I respond in love because that's the not natural response for someone who's shown me love. I, I do a premarital counseling with engaged couples. And every couple that comes into my office to do some premarital conversation, I always ask them, why are you attracted to him? What is it about her that, that, that makes you want to spend the rest of your life with her? And then I kind of sit back and I listen to them tell me, uh, all of these wonderful things uh, about the person whom, to whom they're engaged. And that's a very natural thing. And the result of that, I say, is, okay, so because of all of these characteristics you see in, in, in her or in him, what does that make you want to do? And they say, that makes us want to spend the rest of our lives together, right? That makes us want to have an intimate relationship. A response to love is love in return. And so God calls us, where he calls us, he provides salvation, that's his calling. His calling is to redeem us. He calls us to save us, not to harm us. And so I, I, I am his, I'm a recipient of his love, and therefore I trust him in all circumstances. I know that the circumstances that come my way, therefore, are not intended for my harm because God loves me, he isn't out to hurt me. He's out to care for me and to provide for me. In any and every circumstance, 
God is going to be doing his work in my life. Paul says we know this, and I'm just going to uh, allude to this, not turn to this passage, but if you go to Philippians chapter 1, and you start at verse 12, and you read there, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually turned out for the good. Exact same word he uses here. Well, what had happened to Paul? He had been put in prison. And he literally was chained to four guards 24 hours a day. Sixteen men guarded Paul in uh, four, excuse me, in what's four into 24, six and six hour shifts. Paul had four guys, one chained to his right, one to his left, one to his right leg, one to his left leg. He had four guys with him all day and all night. And Paul says, I want you to know that's a good thing. Because of my chains, the gospel is now known to all of the guards. How would you like to have been chained to Paul? right? Hey, we got six hours. What do you want to talk about? I'm going to talk about Jesus. Oh, I got a captive audience, (laughs) you know? And those men became believers and disciples in Jesus. Their eternity was changed because God works all things for good. And I can trust that. And I can know it's true. Even though everything isn't good, Paul isn't saying that evil is good. Paul doesn't say, and we know that all things are good. Paul says, we know that they work together for the good of those who love Jesus. I remember when Jordan was a little guy, about two years old, uh, and we used to sing this song about the monkeys jumping on the bed, one falls off and hits his head, right? Mama called the doctor, the doctor said, no more monkeys jumping on the bed. Right, well, I think Jordan was jumping on the bed playing that song, and he whacked his head, and uh, it opened up a nice little gash, and we had to go to the hospital, right? And, uh, I, and I didn't, I was nice, I didn't sing that song to him at that point. But he literally was, he's two, you know. So he's literally laying on the table, and the, they come in and they put the sheet over his face. They got to stitch him up. And the doctor says, you know, he's, he's going to want to move around, so we got we to strap him down so he doesn't move. I said, don't do that. I said, I'll hold him. Just let me do this. And so I put one arm over him, and I laid my head down on the bed, and I started whispering in his ear. I said, this isn't going to be any fun. It's going to hurt for a minute but if they're going to take care of you, they're going to stitch you up, and it'll be okay. And he screamed like the dickens, and he was mad at me, and he was mad at the doctors, and he was upset, but he actually got a date a couple weeks ago, and he's glad that they're in a big scar over his eye, you know? (laughs) A girl looked at him and went, oh, he's kind of cute, right? In that moment, you're like, you're screaming, God, what are you doing? These are just stitches of a two-year-old. This this is my life. It seems to be, you know, just a disaster unfolding before me. And the father lays his head next to us. He says, trust me. I love you. I gave my son for you. All of these things will work for the good. So while the stitches of life may may not be fun, uh, God is doing something positive in our lives. So I think the question following 28 is, what exactly is the good that God's building into us? Where is he going with this? How do, how do we understand that? And I think there's an answer in verse 29 and an answer in verse 30. So let's go to verse 29, which I'm calling a well-executed family plan. A well-executed family plan. In Romans uh, 8.29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Uh-oh. <laughs> there's those words. 
You Presbyterians always want to talk about predestination. There they are. I tried to work the schedule out. So JB is going to be doing some preaching in October. I actually tried to work it out so this would be a Sunday, and, and I couldn't quite get it because I'd love for him to come and explain it to everybody. But these are the, these are the words where everybody kind of panics. Oh, no, for, God's foreknowledge and, and predestination, and, and it means we're robots and we don't have any choices, and, and we go all kinds of different scary, weird places with these words. So let's see them for what they are this morning. Let's try to understand that what is happening here is that God has formed a plan from eternity past to eternity future. And this is great news for, for believers in Jesus. Paul says here that we are foreknown, that we are predestined, and that we are being conformed. Let's look at each of those words for just a minute. To, the word foreknew means that God's had an eternal purpose to save. It doesn't mean that God could look into the future and see what would happen. Friends, you have to understand, God doesn't own a watch because there is no time to God. There is only the eternal present. So to suggest that God looked out in the future and figured it all out and then set it up that way would be erroneous. What it means is that, that, that before the foundation of the world, God had an eternal plan that he was going to be in relationship with mankind. He has a great plan of redemption And he fully intends to save lost sinners. He has an idea of of what he is going to do in his mercy and in his grace. And that thought has always been with God. That plan has always lived in the present with him. So to say that God foreknew simply means that God is not restricted by time. And his plan has always been a plan of redemption, and it has always been there. There has never been a moment in all of eternity, nor will there ever be a moment for the rest of eternity when that plan is not firmly rooted in the mind of God. So the question isn't, does God have a plan that is merciful? He does. The question is, can he pull it off? The question is, is there anything that can hinder you or me coming to know Christ as Savior? Is there any obstacle outside of the plan of God that could keep me from his love? And that's where that word predestined comes in. The word predestined fundamentally means he has the power to pull off the plan. That not only is it firmly rooted in his mind, but his power will see it through. He will affect his purposes. His will is not subject to any outside force anywhere in the universe. Let me read to you Leon Morris's words as he writes on this text. He said, Paul is saying that God is the author of our salvation and that from beginning to end. We are not to think that God can take action only when we graciously give him permission. Paul is saying that God initiates the whole process. And then he quotes another theologian whose, whose last name is Barrett. The history and personal makeup of the church are not due to chance, or to arbitrary human choices, but represent the working out of God's plan. Our own intentions, like our own virtues, are far too insecure to stand the test of time and judgment. He sees it as the most comfortable of all Christian doctrines. If men and women will accept it in its biblical form and not attempt to pry in it with questions which it does not set out to answer, it is the final statement of truth that justification and in the end salvation also are by grace alone, through faith alone. God has a plan to carry out his purposes and nothing in all creation can stand in his way. I, uh, I love reading uh, Patrick McManus. He's one of my favorite uh, humorists in American literature. Uh, and he has written a lot of uh, 
Uh, he's just taken everyday life, and, and he's made it quite humorous. And there's a story that he tells called Sequences. And if you've ever read Patrick McManus, you've read this story. But he talks about how his father-in-law, was, or his stepfather, was one of those guys who always had a, a great idea to go fishing, to go, go hunting, to go do something fun. But he never quite got to it. And he talks about the day that, that his stepdad got up in the morning and said, hey, let's go fishing. Let's go to, let's go to the, our favorite lake and go fishing. And, and I'm just going to kind of read some expert, excerpts of this. As a, uh, and this is somebody telling the story for McManus. As they were loading the gear to go fishing, uh, the stepdad noticed that the fence in the pasture was down. 20-minute job, he thought. 20 minutes and they could go fishing. A simple fix. But he first needed to go over to the harvesters and borrow their wire stretcher. But before he could do that, he had to go to the Malloy's to get his post hole digger that they had borrowed. <clears throat> and it was on the way to the harvesters. Just then he realized he was out of fence staples. So after that, he went to the Malloy's to get the post hole digger. He would then go to Jergens Hardware Store for the staples. And then go to the harvesters to borrow their wire stretcher. But just as he was about to head to the Malloy's, he remembered that he promised Sam Jergens at the hardware store he'd haul him a load of hay bales the next time he came to town. To do that, he'd have to take the truck, which meant he first had to go over to the Leroy's to pick up the leaky tire that he had fixed for him the week before to put on the truck, to take the hay, to go to the hardware store, to get the staples, to get the post. They never go fishing. (laughs) They never get there. The great intentions uh, of the stepdad never play out. Why? Because he, he doesn't have the frame of mind to pull it off. He gets tripped up and tripped up and tripped up. And Paul says, our God has a plan, and he will execute it perfectly for the benefit of his children. Our salvation is secure because God's power is as limitless as his grace. But there's one other word in this passage. Paul says that that those he foreknew, he predestined for a purpose in their lives, which was what? In order that they might be conformed to the image of Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This plan for salvation includes a creating a family resemblance. There, there's part of our salvation uh, that makes us brothers with Jesus, which is truly a remarkable statement. Jesus is going to hold the, 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 the category of firstborn. He will be the, the one of the greatest privilege, but we are going to be younger siblings. We're going to be little brothers and sisters. And part of God's plan for salvation is that in everything that happens in my life, the joys and the sorrows, the pains that you go through, the struggles that I have as as children of God, that in all of these things, our lives would begin to look like our older brother. And that is the good to which Paul refers in chapter 28. Part of the answer of what is the good, the good is that I stop looking like sinful Tom Ricks and I begin looking more and more like the Lord Jesus. And that doesn't always happen in the joyful, wonderful moments of life. Sometimes that happens when, the, when I'm pressed in and when the pain and the struggle comes where I have the chance to live by faith in a very real way. The church where I served before Green Tree, uh, every year for three years, uh, I would get an anonymous hate uh, letter in, a, at, uh, in my office, and it'd be about four pages long. And it would basically say, you know, what a, what a rotten person Tom Ricks was and why he shouldn't, not only be a pastor, but really why he shouldn't even occupy space on planet Earth. And I would read this letter, and I'd be go, Lord, why? Why are you giving me this? I'm pouring my heart out here. I'm working as hard as I can. I'm on a team of pastors that we're giving our, our, our lifeblood for this congregation. Why are, you, why are you discouraging me? Why are you giving me such negative 
uh, feedback when I'm trying as hard as I possibly can. And then my prayer began to turn and say, okay, Lord, strike them down. <laughs> Lord, Lord, actually, Lord, let me, let me share an idea with you, Lord. How about next Sunday I'll preach on the sin of gossip and slander, and halfway through the service, whoever wrote this letter will stand up, clutch their chest, and, and fall over dead. And, and then we can start a ministry of fear, and, of, and, you know, and I'm just... I got this whole plan, and God says, Tom, I really had something else in mind for you. (laughs) You arrogant jerk. (laughs) You don't look very much like Jesus right now. Jesus hung on a cross for his enemies. And as I began to pray through that and think through that, I began to really wrestle with my own insecurity and my own lack of trusting in God. I realized that, that those letters were a blessing, that they forced me to trust in Christ more than trusting in Tom. The other thing they did for me is they they made me try to think almost every day of my life to be the person that offers the kind word. And trust me, I get it wrong more days than I get it right. But when that happens, all that is is a demonstration of God taking all things and forming them for the good, the good being that Tom would look more like Jesus than Tom. And that's what he wants to do in the lives of his disciples. Paul says that we are to be conformed to the image of son, of his son. And that is a gift That is the well-executed family plan of God. But there's one other answer to to what this this goodness is. How do we define all things working together for good? And it's found in verse 30, which uh, I've titled, A Full and Complete Grace. Paul says in in chapter 8, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, those whom he, he powerfully saved, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is nothing lacking in God's plan for his children. Predestined, we are saved by God's power, not by our intellect, not by our wisdom, not by our strength, not by our good works. We're saved because God has an eternal plan and he is executing that plan to perfection. We are also, in light of that, we are called, we are recipients of God's initiative. He is the one who is speaking into our lives. We are not pursuing God, looking for him. He comes calling to us. And when he speaks that truth into our lives, we see the cross of Christ for what it is, and we put our faith in Christ. We reject our ability to save ourselves. We acknowledge our sin, and we bow before God, and we say, I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. If I am going to be saved, it is going to be what Christ has done for me on the cross, and we are justified. We are washed clean and pure and spotless. Remember what John the Baptist cried out when he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is no residue of sin remaining in my life. When I stand before God, when Jesus comes back or when I die, and God says, why should I let you into heaven? I say, Jesus died for my sins. God is going to say, yeah, all but about the four worst ones. And sorry, those there's still a stain there and you don't make it. You're out. I'll be washed in the blood of Christ and I'll be wearing the white robe of his righteousness and I'll be able to be innocent before God because he is the one who has justified me. And that leads to where we're going in the end here, glorified. We will share, we share in the glory of Jesus forever. Notice that Paul says he also glorified. And we think of glory, what do we think? We think somewhere down the road, right? We think, we think heaven someday will be in glory with Jesus. And that's true. But that's not the mind of God. Paul's explained to us the mind of God. 
And the mind of God is in the eternal present. You are glorified in Christ today if you're a believer in Jesus. Now, you haven't experienced the fullness of that glory yet. I haven't experienced the fullness of that glory yet. There is, because we are in a time frame. But God is not. And when God sees us, he has already placed upon us the glory of Jesus. So regardless of my missteps in the next week, regardless of my lack of faith, regardless of the moments where I take my eyes off God and put my eyes on myself and get it wrong, the work of God is done. And the glorification that I will experience in the future is already a reality in the mind of God. It's as good as complete. Life is not always simple. It is not always easy. There are difficult moments. I got a call last week from Nate, about a week and a half ago from Nate. And I picked up the phone. Hey, son, how you doing? Great. Hey, we're in Bruce Owens, my buddy and I, we're going to play golf. And I started talking about golf. He goes, Dad, stop. He goes, Liz and I, <coughs> Liz was pregnant. He goes, Liz and I are on the way to the hospital. She doesn't feel good. There's something wrong. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you I didn't get a lump in my throat. That bothered me a lot. <laughs> this verse didn't hop right, right into my mind. But he said, Dad, I want you to pray for us. Put me on the speakerphone, so I prayed for him while they're driving. Now the car turned out. She's okay. Everything's all right. They'll actually be in the second service. They're in town this weekend. But I got to tell you, at that moment, it was, it was hard to walk by faith. But that's exactly where the Father wants us to go because he knows what he has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we can count all things for the good because we see today's struggles in the context of God's plan to save to make us more like his son Jesus and to bring us into the glory that he already knows is there for us. Maybe my friend is right. It's all good. Let's pray.